Let's open our Bibles to Ecclesiastes, the first couple of chapters. What a wonderful book we have called the Bible. What a variety that the Lord has given us. We have history, we have prophecy, we have poetry, we have apocalyptic literature, we have the Gospels, we have Ecclesiastes. We have a song called the Song of Solomon. We have a doctrinal dissertation like Romans and Hebrews. We are blessed abundantly in the 66 books of the King James Bible. And the Lord has given us these books written by particular men that he raised up that could write them so well. Who knew, who knew more about the Egyptians and the nation of Israel than Moses? Who knew more about the false concept of justification by the works of the law than the Apostle Paul? And could compare it to the glories of the New Testament like he could. Who could write poetry better than the sweet psalmist of Israel named David? And who could write the book of philosophy better than King Solomon? Amen. We have a wonderful treasure in your hands. And it is an individual treasure. There is a God in heaven. That whether the population of this world since its creation has numbered 100 billion, less or more, God is able to write a book that for everyone that will come trembling before it, it addresses you individually, personally, intimately, carefully for your circumstances in life by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is your book. And this is a letter to you by a king God raised up who could try things you're not going to be able to try in your lifetime. And he wants you to know you're never going to be able to eat what he ate. You're never going to be able to have a thousand wives like he had. But he's figured out the lesson for you. What a book. And we want to be thankful for it. It's called Ecclesiastes the Preacher. Because Solomon's the preacher. He set in order good words, certain words of truth to be able to teach the people knowledge that they would be saved from all the madness and folly of human thinking. We have been through chapter 1. In chapter 1, the first three verses were the introduction, where he identified who he was and set before us the purpose of the book. What profit hath a man of all the labor which he taketh under the sun? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What should I do to make life meaningful? What will I leave? What impression will I leave on humanity or history? What is my destiny? What do I go to work for every day? What is the purpose of life? All the questions that have plagued men. And God has arranged things so that those questions do plague men so that they will be exercised in the pursuit of an answer. Because there is no answer under the sun. The answer is above the sun. It's God himself. And we are only going to really see that clearly when we get to the end of the book. But we start out with the, at the beginning with that conclusion because we've already read the book. And so we know the conclusion. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. My entire philosophical experiment with the purpose of man is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And from that foundation flows spiritual wisdom, which then results in natural wisdom of a godly sort. It starts with the fear of the Lord and keeping his commandments. Because he's put down the spiritual wisdom for us. God gave Solomon great natural wisdom. When you read 1 Kings 3 and 4, there's nothing there about a Messiah. There's nothing there about justification. There's everything there about trees, birds, bugs, buildings, 
and helping two prostitutes decide which one's baby had really died. God, Solomon feared the Lord and Solomon had spiritual wisdom. But the experiment that he makes in the book of Ecclesiastes is primarily natural wisdom compared to natural folly. And he ends up with the spiritual wisdom at the very end of it. And he gives us a few hints at spiritual wisdom on the way there. And that's an important distinction for you to make. No man full of godly wisdom is going to experiment with madness and folly. No man in love with the God of heaven and understanding spiritual things and their superiority to natural things is going to go through this kind of experimentation. This is, a, this is natural wisdom that Solomon had. Solomon also feared the Lord. Go, go read his dedicatory prayer at the temple. Amen. Don't get me wrong, but in this book, he is comparing natural wisdom to natural folly. And he hints at spiritual wisdom throughout, and then he gives it to us in the last two verses. Because he, he, put, he gets our attention beyond everything under the sun. The first three verses of chapter 1 were the introduction. You can see his conclusion is there in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The first lesson is in verses 4 down through verse 11, and it is nothing changes, there's nothing new. Generation after generation has come through life and found no purpose, no value, no one remembers them. So don't think that you're going to make a change. Because under the sun, you're not going to make a change. It's all vain. One generation comes. I, I reminded you about an event in my life when Philip was born 25 years ago today. And I was driving to pick my wife up to, to have that birth. He was coming into the world. Sherry's grandmother was going out of the world. I hope you understand by birth. I mean he was there for nine months by conception. Sherry's grandmother was going out of the world. One generation was coming. Another was going. The clouds weren't stopping. The cars weren't stopping. The earth wasn't stopping. Nothing changed. Because the earth abideth ever. All things are full of labor. There's a water cycle. There's a wind cycle. The sun comes up every day and goes down every night. These things just continue on in their course. There's no change. There's nothing new. If you think you've got something new, it's been known a long time ago. Right. And what is new in some day, people are going to look back after it and not even remember it. There is no memory. And so Solomon is just tearing us down before he puts us back together in the last chapter. This life is hopeless. It's all vanity. And we must learn that lesson. God is writing it to you. Right. To you. You know, I wish I could, I could jump out of this, off this platform and go to each one of you and say God wrote it to you. Right. And he raised up a king for your sake. Amen. I, the preacher, was king over Jerusalem for you. The second lesson was in verses 12 through 18, where the lesson was that wisdom is its own vanity. Natural wisdom, the understanding how things work, understanding how things should work, having a whole lot of that leads to grief and sorrow. Because you see how poorly the world is operating, how few men actually make wise decisions, and so it's frustrating and painful. So that's why he would say in verse 18, in much wisdom is much grief. That is not true of spiritual wisdom. There isn't grief in spiritual wisdom. There's glory in spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom is knowing that there is a purpose of God in everything that Jesus Christ gives fulfillment and hope to this life. This is natural wisdom. 
If you knew the answer to every political question that plagues our government, and you're able to look through all their financial, economic, educational, military errors and mistakes, it's frustrating to see all that. Please make that distinction. And if I haven't made that distinction clearly in the past, and I don't think I have, I'm sorry. May God continue to bless us to open our eyes and to see the Word of God more carefully. Amen. When you see wisdom, most of the occurrences of that word in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's talking about natural wisdom. Right. The ability to know things and how things ought to work under the sun. We get to the wisdom that is above the sun in the last two verses and a few hints at it on the way there. Those are the first two lessons of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now we come to chapter 2. And our first lesson is in the first three verses. It's lesson number three of the book. I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do unto the heavens all the days of their life. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 3. While holding his wisdom, natural wisdom, and while experiencing and exploring and experimenting, with human madness and folly, meaning all the false ideas of men and how we ought to live, he experimented with pleasure and joy. He calls it pleasure and mirth and wine. This is his eating and drinking and be merry section. There will be more. But this is it for three verses. I said in my heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. I love the Bible. Epicurus, who started the school of philosophy called Epicureanism, didn't arrive for another 500 years. And yet Solomon dealt with it 500 years before he came on the scene. But if you go take a philosophy course at Clemson or South Carolina or Furman or Harvard or MIT or the University of Chicago or the University of Michigan or Stanford or anywhere, you will not learn about the philosopher Solomon. He already proved Epicurus wrong 500 years before the man was born and got started. You know, in Acts chapter 7, we read, we have the word in our King James Bible. Epicureans and Stoics. Two schools of Greek philosophy there in Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul ran into both of them and he told them they were both wrong, superstitious, idolaters, and that Jesus Christ was coming to judge them all. Praise the Lord. You say, I never took a class in philosophy. You're taking it right now. We're taking it together. God's teaching us. God, the Holy Spirit, is teaching us by His Word. Epicurus is wrong. Epicureanism, which is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, a summary of that statement, of that philosophy, is wrong. That is not the fulfillment of life. If that's the fulfillment of life, would you please tell me, why Britney Spears, Lindsay Lohan, and all the others that in Hollywood spend half their time under the influence of chemicals or in prison. 
They are the unhappiest people on earth, yet they have the most money and the most liberties, and they have the least morals, so they try all the kinds of pleasure the world has to offer, but they are the ones under substance abuse because they are not happy. They're miserable. They divorce every six months because they can't keep a relationship because they're entirely dysfunctional. Young people, do you know that? Or don't you know how to read the news? That little girl that made so many millions prancing her body across stages from England named Britney Spears and popularized those low-rider devilish genes that show off too much of a woman's body? She is a total mess as measured even by pagans. She's ruined her life. Because there is no profit in pleasure. Pleasure by itself will take you down and destroy you. It doesn't last. It, is, it does not bring happiness. It does not bring fulfillment. Hollywood is an amazing, wonderful object lesson for Christians who will read the news properly. Right. Solomon's going to try Epicureanism. I said in my heart, go to now, I'll prove thee with mirth. Mirth is pleasurable feelings or enjoyment or gratification. It's joy, it's happiness. He's going to be happy. That's Epicureanism. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. Find as much pleasure as you can have in life and enjoy it. And behold, look what he says quickly right off the bat in verse 1. This also is vanity. Right. Now you would think, if I'm enjoying pleasure every day, pleasure would just fill me with fulfillment. It doesn't. They go to bed so lonely. They go to bed so empty. They try to fr find a friend in a bottle. They try to find a friend in drugs. They try to find a friend in promiscuity, and they can never find their friend. They're always lonely. They're always empty. They're always looking. And so the idiots that try religion out there in Hollywood, they end up in religions like Tom Cruise, Scientology. It ain't science. It ain't ology. It ain't nothing. It's insanity. Go spend five minutes reading about Scientology. They cannot find fulfillment. You know, there is godly mirth. This isn't what Solomon's pursuing here. He's pursuing natural mirth. And this is important to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. In Nehemiah chapter 8, it tells me that when they had the word of God read to them distinctly and the sense given, and caused those hearers to understand the reading, that they made great mirth. Because they had understood the word of God. That is spiritual mirth for a spiritual reason with a spiritual goal. And that is good and godly. Amen. But just to go to parties all the time is mirth that is foolishness and will leave you empty. Look at what Solomon said about it quickly in verse 2. I said of laughter, it is mad. I don't recommend this often. But when was the last time you watched a sitcom? Mark is so helpful. You know, you watch a sitcom, and you've got these stooges all together. Their IQ doesn't come up to room temperature. Sitting in the audience, and it has a, a, a little sign over the stage telling them, laugh, clap, you know, groan. It's a sitcom. You know, every ten seconds, you've got to have some sarcastic statement made. With, la with staged laughter. There's no one really laughing because there's nothing really all that funny because it's so stupid. Right. And so, 
I'm trying to help you understand second verse. If you haven't ever seen a sitcom and you don't know what I'm talking about, but I think most of you have probably taken a peek now and then. If you've seen a sitcom, look what I said of laughter. It is mad. It's insane just to laugh your way through life. Life is not a laughing matter. Life is a serious matter. But remember, I've already said that there are reasons to have mirth. And when those reasons to have mirth or joy or, or happiness or celebration are based on spiritual truth and God himself, that is lasting happiness. That is real fulfillment. That is real mirth. But just to laugh your way through life at pleasure and making everything a joke, what if you went to an amusement park every day? How many trips would it take until you said, amusement parks are mad? Now, I made that decision before I ever got to the first one, and I'm, I am no example of wisdom in my earlier days. I've never been to Cedar Point. Never wanted to go to Cedar Point. Never saw the purpose of Cedar Point, Cedar Point, even when I was insane as a fool. But how many days would it take you to go to Six Flags over Georgia before you said, it's mad? This is insanity. How many times do you need to get flung upside down and ripped from side to side, scared out of your wits and ready to throw up before you say, what is this all about? Now, I'm not saying that once in a while a little thrill like, like that can't be pleasant or exciting to some of you. But, I mean, how many times do you need to do it before you say, this, is, this doesn't satisfy me? You know, I learned very quickly the first time I was forced to go to an amusement park that waiting for two hours on hot black asphalt in the middle of July while it was 105 degrees and a drink cost $6.50 and I couldn't afford it, to get into a ride that took one minute and 12 seconds was not a good trade. Isn't that about the way it is? You pay $45 to get in, then they want $6.50 for three ounces of Coke poured over nine ounces of ice. And you stand for two hours on black asphalt, sweating to death, having to stand still with all these other crazy people around you to get on a ride that lasts 72 seconds. And you get off it, you say, that's all? Then the person with you says, let's go get in line again. And you want to pull a gun and blow your brains out. And all that is to say... What is Solomon meaning in verse 2? I said of laughter, it is mad. And of mirth, what doeth it? Going to parties and laughing about life, what doeth it? When you're done, are you made better by it? You know we're going to get more on this lesson, don't you, before we get to the book of Ecclesiastes. Is he going to tell us in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 that it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting? It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the laughter of fools? It's better, it's better, it's better. But here he's just telling us it's madness, it's insanity. Lord, have mercy upon us and save us from a generation that is totally addicted to amusement. They want to amuse themselves hour after hour. Jokes. You turn on morning talk radio and it's just full of jokes. I haven't turned it on for so many years. Do they still joke in the morning? Thank you. Okay, so I don't have any helpers here. The rest of you are just quiet. They just want to tell a bunch of jokes on the way to work in the morning, tell them on the way home at night, fill yourself with jokes in between, meet somebody at the water fountain, tell another joke. Everybody wants to use sarcasm and barbs and jokes and laugh. What is it? It's madness. And we have a generation that's addicted to amusement. 
When the Bible tells us that we need to spend some time musing. And I've been over these things before. I hope this isn't new. If this is new, then I haven't been a very good pastor. This is a reminder of us to us from the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's what the Lord said in Psalm 143 and verse 5. He said, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. There, there in that verse are three verbs. Remember, meditate, and muse. How much does, that, does this world do of those three things? To remember the good things God has done. To meditate upon them means to think very seriously and soberly about them. And to muse is another word meaning the same thing. To let them sink into your hearts and to ponder and reflect upon them. Remember, meditate, muse. But our world is dedicated to amusement. But Solomon already tried it. And he said it's madness. And what good does it do? By the grace of God, there was something in my soul that never found satisfaction in all that noise and confusion. I was the loneliest, and I've I've told you this before. As a teenager, I was so incredibly lonely. I was so incredibly unfulfilled, unsatisfied, and wondering what was the purpose for life. Miserable. By the grace of God. Thank you, Lord, for making me miserable. And for those of you who've ever heard me pray about any... Carnally minded Christians, you hear me pray, Lord, make them miserable. That they'll humble themselves and come to the only satisfying fountain in the universe. And that's the God of heaven. And delighting in him. I didn't say anything that says you can't. If you you want to go to Six Flags over Georgia, please go on a homeschool day or someday when at least they're going to wear half clothing in there. Go when the temperature's a little cooler. Get yourself flung around a little bit. And come home. But it's so vain. And you know, our world loves it. They'll do it day after day. Different kinds. And it's always empty. So they always want to try a new one. What does Six Flags Over Georgia have to do every year? They have to add a new roller coaster that goes one foot higher and one MPH faster. Because if they just had the same old thing, nobody would go back for it. So they got to press the edge of the envelope just a little bit more. So they go one foot higher and one mile per hour faster. And it still doesn't satisfy. Solomon tried it. I'm going to prove myself with mirth and with pleasure. This is vanity, he says right off the bat in verse 1. It doesn't cut it. It's empty. It's futile. It's worthless. It's profitless. Then he gets worse. He says of laughter in verse 2, it's mad. It's crazy to laugh your way through life. There is such a difference in the last 100 years of our nation. You can tell by looking at photographs. You look at photographs of our grandparents and great-grandparents, they were sober people because life was sober. Our, this generation, every time you meet somebody, you gotta, you're expected to say something funny, stupid, or otherwise. And it is such a temptation for us to fall into that rut ourselves. When we need to be giving thanks to God, praising God, exhorting one another, comforting one another, provoking one another to love and to good works, but instead we're, they're looking for some quick one-liners to joke about because our nation is obsessed with pleasure. Solomon took care of it 3,000 years ago by his experimentation with mirth and pleasure, and he says it's madness. We live in a generation where even Christians are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Even Christians have not submitted themselves to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that says pleasure and laughter and mirth is madness and has no fulfilling purpose. 
Verse 3, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine. He doesn't say here that he gave himself to drunkenness. He says he gave himself to wine, and wine here is used as a synecdoche, as part of luxurious eating and drinking, part of the Epicurean form of happiness. I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet equating my heart with wisdom, natural wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, natural folly, foolish opinions of men, trying to find out what the purpose of life was, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do unto the heaven all the days of their life. This section is a lesson on pleasure, mirth, and luxurious eating and drinking. He does not say he gave himself to drunkenness. Even a drunk isn't naturally wise, but he kept his natural wisdom. Wine is an important part of luxurious eating and drinking. You aren't really eating and drinking as well as you could unless you include wine, according to the Bible. I'm not trying to sell wine. I don't have a vineyard, and I don't own stock in any wine company. But the Bible sets that forth. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 26, it tells Israel that when they were to come before the Lord with their families and celebrate once a year with 10% of their gross income, they were to eat and drink whatever their soul lusteth after. For wine, for strong drink, for ox, for sheep, whatever your soul lusteth after. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15 tells us that God gave bread to make strong the heart of man. God gave oil to make his face to shine in a dry climate. And God gave wine to make his heart glad. Solomon's going to tell us in chapter 10 and verse 19 that feasting is made for wine. Wine's made for feasting because it's one of the ways of luxurious eating and drinking. David, when he wanted to please all of Israel at moving the Ark of the Covenant, he sent everyone home with a loaf of bread, a good piece of flesh, and a flagon of wine. Now, if you don't like wine, then go to strong drink. I'm just quoting the Bible. I know that's totally contrary to every Baptist church practically, except those that are willing to follow and trust the Bible. Because in Deuteronomy 14, 26, it says, Whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for wine or for strong drink. All all that is to just give you an understanding of what he means in verse 3. I sought in mine heart while he's pursuing mirth and pleasure... I sought luxurious eating because that is the eat, drink, and be merry. Did we have that read to us already? The rich man had so much prosperity that he didn't have the barns to hold it. He said, I'll pull down my barns and I'll build bigger barns. Eat, drink, and be merry. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 31. And Jesus would say to him, thou fool, tonight thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be that you have acquired, obtained, and heaped up? Jesus said, a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth, which is the next lesson, but not this lesson. Right now we're dealing with pleasure. There's a place for being merry, but that merry ought to flow from a godly heart. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 13, we read this. A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. All the days of the afflicted are evil. But he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. The Apostle Paul would teach us in the New Testament, Rejoice in the Lord, and rejoice evermore. And again I say, Rejoice! The Lord hath given us richly all things to enjoy, from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Enjoying the good things God's given are part of being a Christian. However, first things first. And that's loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
and loving His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and loving our neighbor as ourself, then enjoying those things. There's a proper order for them. And that order is taught by taking heed to all of the Scriptures, not just the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to share with you some verses. Excessive laughter is the, is the noise of fools. Giggling, cackling, laughing. We want to guard ourselves against that. It's a nervous habit by some people. They, they're so nervous when they're talking to somebody that they giggle and cackle after every sentence because it's how they cover for their nervousness. But it's something you need to end. There is nothing wrong with a moment of silence. Right. Silence is far superior to laughter. But to some people, a little bit of silence is so painful for them, they think they need to fill the air with noises out of their mouth. And so the noises that come out are usually foolish without thought. They're vain, empty, mirth, and laughter. There's no, there's no problem with just standing and looking at someone while you think about something wise to say. Turn to Isaiah 22, and let's look at a couple of the references in the Bible about mirth and pleasure. And ease. Isaiah chapter 22. Do you remember reading in 1 Kings chapter 4? While you're looking up that verse. 1 Kings chapter 4. Solomon, we're told, every day the provision for his table. Do you remember? Ten fat oxen that were taken out of the barn. Twenty oxen from the field that that ranged freely. A hundred sheep. Fallow deer. Roebuck deer. Other deer. Remember? Ten bushels of fine flour, twenty bushels of meal every day. He knew how to eat. There was quite a menu in Solomon's palace. When you sat down to eat, you had the choice of all those different kinds of flesh. You had bread and everything else they stuck in between. The Bible tells us he had confectionaries and bakers. He had everything. He tried it all. Do you know what he's going to say to you? He's going to say to you, do you think you can eat better than I did? He says that in chapter 2 before we can get out of it. You'll never eat better than I did. And that's not where the fulfillment of life is. Mirth and pleasure. Isaiah 22, verse 12. And in that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping and to mourning and to baldness and to girding with sackcloth. God called them to get serious about their religion because he was about to judge them. And what did they do instead? Verse 13. And behold, joy and gladness slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. And it was revealed in mine ears by the Lord of hosts, Surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till ye die, saith the Lord God of hosts. They said, eat, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And God said, okay, I'll give you your petition. You'll die. Because there is a proper order for things. And we need to confess our sins and be serious and sober before God to make sure that our hearts and lives are right with Him. Then we can enjoy these things in their proper place. This verse does not overthrow David sending home a loaf of bread, a good piece of flesh, and a flagon of wine to every household in Israel. It just puts things in their proper order. And if you are not walking in fellowship with God, James chapter 5 tells you that you ought to be mourning and you ought to turn your laughter to weeping. But once you've confessed your sins and you are walking with God, He has given us richly all things to enjoy under both Testaments. Right. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos. Amos chapter 6. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. 
Amos chapter 6. Oh, that rich man said, eat, drink, and be merry. There's a place for it. There's an order for it. There's a priority for it. But just to go after that like this world is obsessed, they seek it with greed, according to Ephesians chapter 4. They seek lasciviousness with greed to try to find happiness in an unbridled approach to pursuit of pleasure and fulfilling their lusts. Amos chapter 6. Let me read a few verses to you here. Let me start way back at verse 1. Follow with me for a few verses. This is, this is a warning to us as well as to the Israelites that it was written to. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. This is verse 1 of Amos 6. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel come, came. Pass ye unto Calna and see. And from thence go ye to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms? Or their border greater than your border? Ye that put far away the evil day and cause the seat of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall, that chant to the sound of the vial, and invent to themselves instruments of music like David, that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive, and the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. The Lord God hath sworn by himself, saith the Lord the God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore will I deliver up the city with all that is therein. The warning here is against those that are at ease in Zion. These are those that call themselves Christians but are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. They have, not, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof, and they have not repented of their sins. Instead, they are just enjoying the good life. And he lists the things they're enjoying. They're lying upon beds of ivory. They're stretching themselves on couches. They're eating lambs of the flock, calves of the midst of the stall. They chant to the vial. They have instruments of music, of all kinds of music. They're drinking wine. They're anointing themselves with ointment. But they do not grieve for sin. If you put things in their proper order, then there is a place to enjoy the good things of life. But you better put the first things first. And that's grieving for the sin uh, in Zion. That's grieving for the affliction of Joseph. And that's grieving to make sure that you are right with God. And then a meal can be enjoyed with peace between you and God. Back to Ecclesiastes. Please. Back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The Bible says, Hast thou found honey? Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith and vomit it. There's too much of even a good thing. According to Proverbs 25 and verse 16. And pleasure can certainly be too much. And, Solomon, and Paul ran into those men that Solomon had already refuted 500 years before Epicurus was born. What should a man do with his life? Solomon tells us that is his purpose. And he tells us in verse 3 that he set himself to try to find that purpose. He gave himself to wine while yet holding his natural wisdom. He gave himself to pleasure and mirth. He found it to be vanity. He's not found it yet. 
as we make our way into lesson number four, the second lesson of chapter two. I'm going to read verses four down through 11. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And, behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, And there was no prophet under the sun. The next lesson in the book of Ecclesiastes is chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. Solomon tried things, building programs, possessions, wealth, riches, vineyards, orchards, servants, music. He tried it all. What was his conclusion? It was as bad as everything else. It was all vanity. It was empty, it was profitless, it was worthless, and it caused him a great deal of pain and trouble getting it. It was vanity and vexation of spirit. Isn't this wonderful? This book is wonderful. We live in an incredibly materialistic age. As I wrote yesterday in the preparatory email, there may have been other generations in the history of the world, there may have been, that were as materialistically minded as we are. However, they did not have it piped into their lives every minute of every day. We see it on billboards, on television, on advertisements, in magazines. We hear it on radio. We hear, it's everywhere. It's piped in everywhere we go that you need more, more, more. That it needs to be bigger, bigger, bigger. The size of houses they build nowadays were unknown just a couple of decades ago. Unknown. Unless you were the filthy rich. Now there's whole subdivisions of them all over Greenville County. Where if you don't have a three, four, five, or six car garage, you are totally unprepared for life. If you don't have five, six, seven bedrooms and bathrooms for your one child, you're not giving them all that they need. Listen, I don't know how many bedrooms a child can sleep in at one time. But Solomon already tried all this. I made me great works. When Solomon says it's great works, he didn't invent a better mousetrap. He made some great works. You can read about them in 1 Kings chapter 3 all the way to verse 10. One of the houses he built was the house of the Lord. One of the houses he built was the house of Pharaoh's daughter. One of the houses he built was his own summer house. And you can read about those houses. And they were magnificent. 
He knows all about houses. Now, you may see some houses with gold paint. You may see some houses with fixtures that have a little bit of tiny, a little tiny bit of gold painted on those fixtures. But they're not made of gold. Solomon liked gold, and he had things made of gold. Gold is very malleable. That's one of its chemical features, or features of a mineral, that makes it different from other metals. You can take gold and beat one ounce of gold out. That's only the, what was a U.S. $20 gold piece. You can take one ounce of gold and beat it out, and it'll cover 100 square feet, and it won't break. It's malleable. And see, that's what you get when you see something gold at Lowe's. You pay top dollar and get something gold. It's got a little tiny film there that if you took all the, all the faucets on the counter there and melted it down, you might get a half a dollar because it's very malleable. But Solomon didn't worry about painting things with gold. Solomon had things of gold. The drinking vessels that Solomon had were made of gold. Did he tell you, did he want you to know about his kitchen that there were no silver vessels in his kitchen? He wanted you to know that for a reason. Because he despised silver. Silver was just not worth enough to be in his kitchen. Everything needed to be made of gold. The Bible says that. Silver was out in the streets where he made it as popular as stones. Is this all in the Bible? Amen. Do you know why it's all in the Bible? Because Solomon wants you to know that you could never try what he tried, and he's already come to a conclusion that's better than a conclusion you can come to, so why don't we all just submit to his wisdom and learn it? That's why it's in the Bible. There's whole chapters about what Solomon had. You read one of them last night in 1 Kings chapter 10. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. Gardens, orchards, trees of all kinds of fruit. He just didn't have an apple orchard. He had all kinds of trees. Remember, he could speak about trees so well that kings of the earth came to hear him. He had servants, and those servants were increasing so that his household was always getting larger because servants were being born in his house. He had great herds of cattle, and he gathered silver and gold in the way that I've just described. He had shields and targets made of three pounds of gold, didn't he? He had the peculiar treasure of kings in the provinces. Now, that is not some particular thing that you're supposed to figure out. A peculiar treasure of kings in the provinces are unique gifts given by kings to Solomon. Kings have peculiar treasures. Some of them would have tapestries or they would have works of gold, works of brass. They would have things unique to their province. Metals, minerals, textiles that were unique to that particular part of the world. And they came year by year and gave them as gifts to Solomon. So that he was increasing in all the peculiar, unique gifts that kings and the governors of provinces would have. He had them all. He had treasure rooms that you could go through and see the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. He had singers, women singers. Whenever he wanted to hear more bass, he would just tell the women singers to be a little quiet. He could turn up the bass. He could turn up the alto. He had men and women singers, and it was live. And he had all sorts of instruments. Remember, his father had invented all sorts of musical instruments. Solomon had all that. He, he puts all of this together, verses 4 through 8, and he says in verse 9, So I was great. We're not going to be able to say that. But we don't need to say that. God raised up a man to do this for us. So I was great. And he's not boasting. He's telling you the truth. 
and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. And that includes his father, David. Also, my wisdom remained with me. I had all my natural wisdom while I did all these great works. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I could buy anything I wanted. I could build anything I wanted. Was he short on workmen? Did he have bond servants and did he have a few of them? The descendants of every nation that Joshua and the judges had not destroyed, he took every single one of them and made them bond servants. Then he had hired servants of all the Israelites to rule over them and direct them. He had workmen coming out of Tyre to come down and work in the cedars for him. He had craftsmen coming down out of Tyre that could work in brass and all the metals for him. He could build anything he wanted, and he did. I, whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. The lust of the eyes, if he could think of something that could be built, should be built, or that he would enjoy walking through, he built it. You know, if you need to go see a $1 million, $2 million, $3 million, $4 million house, ask Dave Taylor, ride along to work with him someday, and walk through one of these palaces that are built on Lake Kiwi or up at the Cliffs of Glassy, and walk through one of these houses and see how fancy they are, but they're, 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 they're pretty commonplace nowadays. They're nothing like what Solomon had. You know, some man's going to have to live there by himself with one little kid and one little wife. Solomon had a thousand wives, a few kids, and a whole bunch of servants that kept multiplying. He had it all. Do you remember how much it took to feed his table? He didn't withhold himself. I withheld not my heart from any joy. Anything that I thought would make me happier, I got it. I built it. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor. He had some temporary joy from it. He would build something, stand back and look at it and say, look at this. But as soon as you say that, then what starts happening? It starts rusting. Moths get into it. Thieves try to get it. Somebody else builds something better. It gets taxed. And on and on you go so that you can't enjoy it. Right. My heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. All I got from it was I could finish it. Say, look at this. Take a walk through it, and then it changes. He says in verse 11, Then I looked on all my works that my hands had wrought, and in the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. This was not the purpose for life, all the things that I had built. When I would get the vineyard planted and I would walk through it and look at all the fine rows stretching over the rolling countryside. And if you've ever seen pretty pictures of a vineyard in California or Italy, they are very beautiful sights to behold. But he would walk through it. His heart would be filled with joy. But then as soon as he thought about it, this doesn't satisfy me. i got to build a bigger one. I just heard news that Hiram built a bigger one. And that's just so irritating. And there's more things that irritate, but I can't cheat and get ahead yet. Because they're right here in chapter 2. He looked on all those things. We have a nation that wants to make you feel bad because your house is not as big as someone else's house. You don't have as many, you don't have as many doors on your garage as someone else has. Your car is not as late of a model as someone else's car. Our world is wanting to press that on you every day of your life. And that is not where satisfaction is. That is not fulfillment. You will never be satisfied that way. If you make cars, houses, yards, orchards, or anything else the object of your life, you will never be satisfied. There is so much upkeep in those things. Someone else is always going to have a vineyard prettier than yours, a vineyard bigger than yours, a car newer than yours, or a car with options that you forgot to get 
or couldn't afford to get, and on and on and on it goes. So that you look at all those things, you can't take any of them with you. You're going to have to leave them in your will. Then some idiot's going to be driving your car when you're gone. You're going to be looking down from heaven and seeing someone tooling around in your car. It's going to irritate you. And you can't even sleep in the night because you're worried about it. This is all in chapter 2. I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do. And though he had got a little bit of heart joy out of it when he would finish the project, when he analyzed it, does this fulfill my life? And is this a good purpose for me having lived? Was this worth it for all my labor? Behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Every day of your life, you should remember this. And while the world is pushing more and more and more at you, just remember it's vanity, it's vexation of spirit, and there's no profit. Do you know what? You can live in a tent. You can live in a tent, and if you've got the Lord and you're living with Him, you, it can prove to be a palace. Because that is where ple- real pleasure, real happiness, real joy starts. It's walking with God. It has nothing to do with the size of the place you live. How big of a bed can you sleep in? I know that's a dumb question. But listen, Bill Gates could buy a bigger bed than a king-size bed. But would you be happier in a bed bigger than a king-size bed? What would you do in it? You'd get lost. You wouldn't be able to buy sheets for it. What do you need all that for? Solomon looked at it all and it gave him no purpose. There was no profit. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.